This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome. It's episode 475 of IAQ Radio. It's Friday, September 1st, 2017. And we want to wish everyone a happy Labor Day weekend this week. And uh, we're going to flashback to a Flashback Friday to a show. Actually, a couple shows we did with Jeff May, author and indoor environmental professional. The first one was our 25th show back in 223 of 07. And the second one was show 117 from 320.09. Between those two shows, we came up with an hour of great information for listeners and i uh, also want to mention we had jeff on not too long ago on show 400 that was on february 5th of 2016 if you like what you hear today i encourage you to go ahead and listen to our most recent show with jeff but before we get started let's thank our marquee sponsors IAQ Radio marquee sponsors are John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Well, that was actually one of the things I enjoyed about My House is Killing Me. You gave some very practical tips for homeowners, and, and I'm curious, do you get involved on in writing protocols for projects, or do you primarily just go in and tell people what to do and then give them a list of contractors? How do you handle that? Yeah, but that's sort of what I do. I mean, I, I don't uh, just do much in the way of sort of specifying. I just generally outline things. What, what I really enjoy is solving problems. You know, people have some, some issues, and then I go in and I take my air samples and my dust samples, and then and then I, I do all my own microscopy, and I just look at the samples. I might take, uh, you know, 20, 30 samples in a, you know, in a small space. And then uh, what it allows me to do is to sort of figure out the source. It just kind of drives me crazy when people go in and take, you know, a sample or two of the air, and then they say, oh, you know, you've got a problem. There's, you know, penicillium or aspergillus or something that's elevated. And then the... The, the the building occupant doesn't know what to do. There's no answer there because the source hasn't been located. So you do your own analysis. Do you do it on site? Do you take it back to your own uh, spot, or do you do both? Well, I, you know, I, I I have a microscope in my office with a uh, with a camera, and then I also have one that I sometimes travel with. So on occasion, in some emergencies or for whatever, you know, for various reasons where people needed to know things on the spot. But what I found is that it's too easy to make mistakes looking at samples for very quickly in a short period of time on site. So if you just want to find out if something's mold or not, I think that's fine. Uh, but, you know, some of the more subtle things require oil immersion and a lot, you know, it takes a while for the stain to take and you, you can't really rush through these things. I'm curious what your thoughts are on the uh, ERMI. Are you familiar? I'm sure you're familiar with EPA. Well, now it's the Environmental Relative Moldiness Index and PCR. Have you been playing with that at all, Jeff? Uh, no, and I, I did actually. You know, I just had a, a, an article in that Indoor Environment Connections. I think the um, that Q, what is it, QPCR. I think it's going to be too. It, it may be too sensitive. I think it's going to be useful for for some things. Very useful. And it's a terrific sort of research tool, but I mean, for everyday uh, analysis, it's probably it's it's really overkill. Uh, I mean, the the greatest tool, as far as I'm concerned, for all all air quality work, at least with bioaerosol, anyway, is the, is the microscope. And I guess your own uh, nose and eyes and ears as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's really key. Yeah. You've got to learn to listen to what the customers and clients are telling you and then try and figure out what the problem is. 
And I'm curious, do you work with any other inspectors? Do you do any training courses? Have you ever been, you know, do you do guest speaking? Oh, oh I do uh, lots of speaking. I've given, you know, hundreds of talks. I'm doing one at that main indoor air quality uh, meeting in March. And I've um, done some for uh, IACWA. I did, and uh, I actually taught training. I had uh, I had two or three sessions I, of um, teaching people how to do microscopy. It was actually it was a lot of fun. I had the uh, video camera, the microscope, and ten stations. And there are some people out there now who that's all they do. Really, they started doing it, uh, you know, as a result of that course. And now they just that's all they do is air quality. All right, and uh, you don't do any home inspections at all now, do you? I'm just curious what you tell people who are looking for a good home inspector with your background. What type of tip do you give to a consumer who's looking for a good home inspector? Don't take the real estate agent's recommendation. There's a great, I mean, a lot of real estate agents are very, you know, reputable and et cetera, et cetera. But the bottom line is that if a home inspector is very, very thorough, uh, they're, they're not really going to be getting, uh, they're not going to be getting the, the best inspection they could if they're going to, if they referral to the broker. Because you can't, you know, you, there's a lot of money uh, riding on every deal and it's, you know, thousands of dollars in commission and, if you, you know, I, my experience with as a, when I was doing that work is was that if you if you mess up a deal because of something that you find on a home inspection, the real estate agent never calls you back. They never refer anybody to you again because they've lost their commission. Uh, my partner left some questions here, and I think I'd like to get Zach to jump in for a moment and ask a Absolutely. few of these questions. Absolutely. What? What effect does an IEQ problem have on a family's interpersonal relationships? Well, it's uh, it can it can be very very straining. Uh, I mean, in, in 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 also places of work as well. I mean, usually there there are only a small number of people, maybe one person who's really suffering. It's very common to find. You know, the husband who's at work all day, let's say, he doesn't have exposure at home, whereas his wife may be home a lot more during the day and the kids are home and they have much higher exposures and they're more likely to be sensitized. And, uh, and they just, they don't, uh, they really don't believe in, uh, they don't believe it. They just think the wives are complaining, you know, <laughs> or the kids are complaining. And I, I mean, I've actually had some people who, it's happened to me, I think, maybe twice now where they got the report and then the wife said, you know, hey, screw you, and they got divorced. <laughs> and I didn't get sued. <laughs> but, you know, they finally they realized, you know, there was a reason, you know. And, uh, Is there some type of statistical analysis that you've done on this or is there some data on who is affected more as far as target groups men women children uh, i don't have that so much uh you know is uh, <clears throat> but that's a, an observation that what the statistical analysis i did do i actually compared 600 uh sick buildings to 300 control buildings that i had in, inspected and i what i found was that the the um the likelihood of having respiratory problems was twice as great if you had central air conditioning in a in a home, hmm. or if you had a finished basement with carpet. That was also very very high. And the interesting thing that came out of it was that that visible water stains and damage was not that highly correlated. And what it really what it told me was that really the biggest problem. In, in, in homes, and it's actually in other buildings, in, in bigger buildings too, it's the bioaerosol coming from the air conditioning system where you've got wet dust all the time. And then carpets, because they can have huge infestations of mold as a result of high humidity or mold, whatever, and, and you don't see it. You walk on it and you have tremendous uh, exposure because of the disturbance of the mold. CJ? Your um, your comments on carpet actually actually made me think of something. I every, every every day I every day I go to the gym and I work out. And where I work out, some 
somebody thought, oh, well, let's put carpet in the men's locker room where, where, where quite possibly hundreds of guys are coming out of the showers dripping wet and walking on it, as I'm, as I'm, and as I'm sure you're aware of, uh, athlete's foot is technically a fungus. So are I you up to think they have carpeted locker rooms? Yes. Yes, the, the actual section where the lockers are is carpeted. Why do you go there? Because it's close to home. <laughs> he wears plastic, those little plastic uh, sandals. Uh, when oh, you trust me. Out. Trust me. I have that, and I disinfect my gym towels every week. I have a fresh <laughs> towel every day. Trust me. Good, good. <laughs> what? That's, that's amazing. I know one of the more difficult issues that people who do indoor air quality investigations face are odor problems. Jeff, can you talk to us a little bit about some of the common odor problems that you run into? Yeah, they're, the odor problems are a killer. I mean, they're very, very hard to, to you know, sort of resolve and, and, and to figure out. And, and actually, we have a test in the book. We talk about this thing. I, I actually devised this thing. Uh, it's called an aluminum the, uh, paper towel or aluminum foil test. Uh, you know, if you have an odor coming from a surface, you just can't locate that. And so what, what I have people do is just take a nice, clean paper towel and then fold it in half twice and then just lay it on that surface and then cover it with a piece of aluminum foil and tape it in place. Now, if the surface is off-gassing, the paper towel will absorb the odor. And uh, you do that. You leave it in place for a day. You can put, like, 20 pieces of you know, foil in, in an environment, do ceilings, walls, floors, uh, and you label them and number them, and then you, you remove it, you fold it up very quickly because the aluminum foil then seals in that odor, and you go to a place where there's no odor outside if that's convenient, and then you sniff them one by one, and <clears throat> if it's the source, then that will actually, uh, you know, it'll be obvious, and <laughs> the way I discovered that was sort of funny, it was, in a, it was actually a law office, and Nobody can go into this one meeting room because they would get sick, they would get nauseous and have headaches and things. So for six months, they couldn't use that room. And I actually, I went in there, I spent about an hour and a half, I was taking all dust samples and surface samples. And finally, I, I noticed that there was a, a yellow page sitting on top of the table, this beautiful mahogany table. And I picked it up and I sniffed the top and there was no odor at the top of the book. And then I flipped it over, and I smelled the bottom, and it reeked of butyric acid, which is a, you know, bacterial product, uh, like, you know, from in a sponge. Someone had wiped the table with a dirty sponge, and for six months, nobody could go into that room. And we just we cleaned the table with a little ammonia, which was the base, and neutralized the butyric acid. The smell went away. They were eating lunch there the next day. Wow. So, wow. based on that that observation, <clears throat> I I came up with that uh, aluminum aluminum foil paper towel test. What other kinds of odor problems do you run into? I just it just so happens I just came back from Florida, and um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this. There's a a wallboard that's apparently causing some odor issues. Have you heard about that at all? It's well, I'm not. I haven't heard about specifically the wallboard, but I have had a lot of problems with paint is some particular manufacturer actually where uh, it's only on, on, on sunny warm days and it, and it, where you get this like really sickening mercaptan like odor and that's coming uh, from the paint. So they had that in, in a couple of situations and then in, it actually went and <laughs> looked at a place in New York where a woman who was chemically sensitive built this house with tile floors, everything was supposed to be perfect. And I, you walk in the door and, you know, I just about had a headache in about a second. And uh, what, we, what we figured out was the problem was the joint compound. It was so weird. You'd smell the wall and there'd be no odor. And every 16 inches on center, there was this terrible, terrible smell, irritating. And what they had put, someone had put fungicide in the joint compound. So it only smelled at the inside and outside corners of the drywall and then where they had been nailed onto the studs. Hmm. And other types of odor problems that, that you run into, um, what about like in HVAC systems? What's the most common problem you find with respect to odors in HVAC systems? Well, most, I guess, you know, just where the, where the, uh, where the liners have gotten wet. And, uh, you know, it's funny, you get this sort of, 
it's this sort of ecological, you know, growth. You have the first, you know, the primary colonizers, and you get bacteria, and then you get yeast, and and if you, you know, mold. So that seems to be the, you know, the most common odor problem there. Same, I guess, I would say probably bacteria, mold, and carpets. Very obviously, very very common. Uh, we had, let's see, uh, strange odors. We talk about it in the book. There for. For a long time, the uh, window screens were made, made out of uh, by one manufacturer, really in the whole country. And I think it was in Tennessee, and they were vinyl uh, fiberglass screens, and they, it, it, that could make a whole house smell it, when the sun would hit them. And uh, you know, you get these strange things like people, you know, have no no odor until 10 o'clock or two in the afternoon or something, and or it disappears suddenly when the part of the house shades another part. Uh, <clears throat> so there've been a lot of uh, a lot of those uh, screens, uh, off-gassing problems, paint problems, uh, sewer gas is obviously another one. You know, intermittent sewer gas problems there causes people to have headaches. I've got a, a question that Cliff left behind. What do-it-yourself IAQ disasters have you encountered? <laughs> oh, I guess uh, all kinds, but uh, you know, the <laughs> I got my I like those uh, those drier uh, when people with the energy crisis they were trying to humidify their house and they'd put those uh, I can't even think of what they call them now these you know those baskets with the water inside them and I actually had one uh, what do they call yeah lint traps right the water lint traps they'd actually they put. Uh, there was enough cellulose in there that Stachybotrys was actually growing. Wow. Growing oh, God. In the lint trap. And then another guy built a, uh, uh, he built a, um, a greenhouse on the side of his house and incorporated that as part of his uh, the return system where he would sort of, you know, he was preheating the air in the greenhouse. But they were mostly just mushrooms growing in, you know, dirt. After <laughs> <laughs> they were sick. People that uh, vented it dryer into the basement through the made even little filters, you know, put spe- like to try and filter the lint out. Oh, it just uh, goes on and on, I guess. What um, I'm I'm curious. What about uh, as far as people who are asthmatic or prone to allergies? What type of heating system do you recommend for those types of people? Yeah, well, no, I mean, no question about it. I, I recommend uh, <coughs> a, uh, you know, hot, forced hot water and, and not, you know, central air, or heat pump or any of that, I mean, or a furnace, I should say. Now, um, you have to sort of draw a little line here because a lot of, you know, there, a lot of people have asthma as a result of, let's say, tree and grass pollen or outdoor molds, and those people really have to have their indoor air sort of very well filtered. So... They do need to have some sort of air conditioning set up or filtration or what have you. But the, the big problem that I find is that if you have central air conditioning uh, in, in any building, actually, what, what happens is that you've got moisture, you have mostly inadequate filtration, so you have dust accumulation on the coil, you get buildup of all kinds of microbial uh, <clears throat> growth. And, and so that... That material, which is mostly kind of wet in the air conditioning season, dries out during the heating season, and you get a lot of bioaerosol. So people who have uh, systems, central systems with air conditioning and heating combined, they are exposed to the same allergens, you know, spring, summer, fall, and winter. And so that really raises the likelihood that they're going to get some sort of immune response. If you got baseboard, if you have baseboard convectors, at least for most of the for most of the winter season, you're not going to have the exposure to the bioaerosol. In the swing seasons, you have open windows, so really you're only dealing with with the air conditioning season, and and that makes it a lot simpler. So they ought to be separate heating and, and separate cooling. Well, Jeff, I've got a two-part question for you. I, I suppose you often deal with clients who've done their own diagnosis as to what is causing their alleged building-related illness. The majority of the time, have you found them to be right or wrong? And if you find them to be wrong, how do you get them to consider other possibilities as reasons for their illness? 
Well, you know, it, it is pretty common <clears throat> for people to, uh, you know, to, to assign their uh, symptoms to incorrectly. What, what I think I always do is I always, you know, I always believe the client. To me, that's where this, all of these investigations really start. So I don't disbelieve the client, but very often they have, they're focusing on something that isn't really the cause. So just, I actually had a situation like that very recently where uh, a woman has had water intrusion in, a, in her apartment and uh, they did take out some drywall that was moldy and, and it, actually the water problems haven't really been solved. And and uh, <clears throat> she's convinced that it was, you know, stachybotrys. And actually she had a couple of reports from two different labs that said from two different investigators there was stachybotrys spores in, in the air. They each found one stachybotrys spore doing uh, sort of, you know, non, the non-viable sampling. And uh, I, I took about 25 air and dust samples in her apartment, and I did not find a single stachybotrys spore. In fact, there wasn't even any mold. She was horrified. She didn't really doesn't believe it. But there were. She's using a lot of air purifiers, charcoal air purifiers, and they're throwing out little bits of charcoal, and they kind of like look like stachybotrys. Some of them. So I think the other investigators misidentified um, the charcoal as as mold spore. So now I, I and now I have to tell her that you know it's not. It isn't stachybotrys that's the problem. She's convinced that it's the problem. Indeed. I don't know how to do that, but I, I mean, I actually, in order to, I actually brought the microscope to the job. I very rarely do that. I've only done it a few times, but I, cause, because she's done microscopy, I thought she would, you know, appreciate that. So she, you know, looked at the slides with me, and then she just couldn't believe it. I mean, there were no mold spores in any of the samples, really. Interesting. And you don't know if that changed her mind yet or not, I guess. I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to have to, I'll have to, I'll have to, you know, call her, but I mean, I just, uh, I mean, at this point, I'm not really sure. I think what one of the problems might be just wool rug, and this is something else that it's not very common. Because I do my own microscopy, I can see a lot of things that other labs don't really report on. And there were quite a few fragments of wool. Uh, wool rug in the air. Their wool fibers fragment, and there's a, actually there's a scanning micrograph of this in my office. It's killing me. They fragment into re- very small respirable particles, and not every wool carpet does that. A wool rug, it's completely unpredictable. And there was quite a few. And wh- the way I sample carpets and rugs is I actually I take a spatula. It looks very funny, but it's very very effective. I just take a metal spatula. And I tap the rug a couple of times, and then I collect the dust that comes off in a in the in the uh, <clears throat> in the sampler, and then I look at that under the microscope. So in this case, there was quite a few of those small particles that come from the wool. And, and interestingly enough, we both started coughing very shortly after. So I mean, I, I expect that it may be because that's that's what happens to me when there are a lot of these little particles in the air. So. And you can see with a particle counter. I mean, the particle counter can go up from three or four thousand particles per cubic foot up to fifty or sixty or seventy thousand by just a very, very gentle tap on some of these. So, I suspect that that may be causing some of her symptoms. It's just the, the deteriorating wool fibers. That, that brings an, up a question that um, I, I'm curious about, uh, Jeff. When with your particle counts, I noticed you used. Um, per cubic foot and from about three or four thousand up to sixty or seventy thousand what what's your ballpark uh, rule of thumb for what is somewhat normal in a typical indoor environment for a particle count in per cubic foot well the the uh, I mean in, I, I just happen to use that measure because people understand you know cubic foot but the um, if in, in an undisturbed environment, if it's real clean, you might have a thousand or two thousand particles per cubic foot, and then if you've got a lot of activity, you might have five, six, seven, eight thousand uh, per cubic foot, and then if you've got a a carpet that has you know dust in it, that can go up you know quite a bit. So uh, <clears throat> it really depends on how much you know disturbance there is. Uh, in the air. I mean, I've actually, I've, I sampled a crawl space 
for just, you know, with that Burkhardt sampler for mold spores and found in the quiescent air not one aspergillus spore and then just waved the notebook and the count has gone up to 18,000 uh, per cubic meter. So, uh, you know, the, the, the number of particles in the air really depend on, on the state of agitation of things if you're moving around. And um, I mean, I, that's why I think a lot of this, there's so much overemphasis on, on you know, calibrating things that we're in this air quality business. You're talking about two to three orders of magnitude difference between the number of particles, and then you're talking about, you know, a few percentage difference in, in air flows and in calibrating things. It just, it doesn't make sense. It's the, you know, the qualitative, the qualitative of the results are very, very important, probably more important than the quantitative results, but that's what the labs give you, is numbers, so you've got to deal with those. Let's uh, touch on another issue. You've, you've touched on it a bit. We, we know that you know, from reports and studies that the cases of allergy, the number of cases of allergy and asthma are increasing. And I'm wondering if from your, uh, you know, you've been doing this for probably 20 years or more now, from your perspective, are the number of cases of environmental sensitivities and or multiple chemical sensitivity, do they seem to be increasing to you? I don't know if they're they're increasing so much. I mean, as far as environmental sensitivity goes, but there's certainly, you know, there's greater awareness at this point and acceptance. So, <clears throat> I mean, I, I maybe some at least I'd say at least five percent of the people have chemical sensitivity, and uh, and then you know the asthma rate I think has certainly gone up, and I, I have like two possible causes. Not quite what a lot of people are attributing it to, but one is that. The uh, kids don't go out and play out anymore. They don't go outdoors, so they're exposed to indoor allergens. And most of the most, and in fact, I've been in homes where kids were playing video games and and just sitting there for two or three hours without moving anything more than a finger. So they're they're exposed to indoor allergens, and they're sitting in the same place, so they have much higher dust mite exposures. And then. Uh, another, the, my other sort of little pet theory has to do with enzyme exposures from uh, from detergents. I think that uh, <clears throat> the number of number of detergents that have enzymes in them has increased tremendously, and it's probably um, you know 70, 80 percent of the market. And and I think that the enzyme residues in in clothing and in sheets and pillows that that's the uh, you know can cause asthma symptoms you know speaking of enzymes uh, many of the quote unquote green all natural cleaning products are, are based on enzymes uh, could you comment on that well I, I I don't have so much of an argument really with using en enzymes for just for hard surface cleaning but the the, the real problem with enzymes in detergents is that it produces a lot of aerosol. There's resi there are residues that are left on the clothing and there are residues that get into the, uh, you know, into the lint. So, so people are breathing it in and that's really where, you know, where I have my issue that, that uh, I know that the, the industry claims that there are no, there's no allergy to the, the, this particular Protease, it's called subtlest in the in the general public, but in the manufacturing plants, they had very very high rates, over fifty percent sensitization, and a lot of that was occupational asthma. So we know that subtlest is a very potent uh, asthmogen, and uh, and the, the the claim is that the manufacturers all claim, well, there is no residue that'll cause sensitization on the clothing. But I, I, I found otherwise. Well, you know, going back to that, and just, just to discuss it a little bit further, you know, it's not uncommon. I'm not sure what the difference really would be or whether you would even consider there a difference between cleaning clothing with a product that contained enzymes. What about cleaning carpet with a product that contained enzymes? It's not uncommon in certain situations for carpet cleaning detergents to have enzymes in them. 
Right. Yeah, that's interesting, actually. I hadn't thought about that. I suppose, if you know, if there's a lot of enzyme in there, then you could be uh, creating a problem. It, it really depends on the extent of the residue that's left. It does, it does vary tremendously. Uh, for example, if you, uh, the way I discovered this problem was I went, I went into a, a home where uh, I had been previously and they had remediated a lot of things and then I didn't have problems in any areas any longer, but every time I went near anything that had been cleaned, washed, anything, clothing in the closet, sheets, <clears throat> I, I had trouble breathing, and when I went into the laundry, it was it was unbearable, and I, I saved that lint. And uh, I think probably that woman was very clean. She used, you know, instead of an eighth of a cup of detergent, maybe she used a half a cup or two cups, I don't even, <laughs> but she used a lot of detergent. And then if you, these enzymes are somewhat heat uh, sensitive, so if you if you use a very hot dryer, you probably destroy a lot of the enzyme, whereas if you don't use a very hot dryer or you hang things to dry, you have additional residue. So depending on how the clothing is washed, you'll have more or less subtlesin residue on, on the fibers. So that has a, a big impact on, <clears throat> on whether or not you'll be affected by it. So if you're washing a carpet and you're using really hot water, not a whole lot of cleaning agent, you may not have an issue, whereas if the water is colder and you're not using a lot of that, uh, you use a lot of it excess or it doesn't all get sucked out when you, you know, in that second step, then you may end up with some uh, big problems. Jeff, I, I was interested in, you know, we uh, emailed back and forth a little before the show, and I, I was really interested in this particular topic, and it, it's sub subtilisins s-u-b-t-i-l-i-s-i-n and one of the notes you said here was that there's this is the only bioaerosol for which there's a threshold limit value and that that is 60 i guess that's nanograms per cubic meter and that some manufacturers actually use a much lower um goal i guess for exposure in their facilities that are manufacturing these products. I'm curious, what types of levels have you measured in indoor environments of your patients? Uh, I actually, I haven't actually measured it, and I wish, you know, I wish that I could, and I've actually tried to get, you know, a number of allergists uh, interested in that, and I I haven't really been able to to actually test patients and, and test the air. So the only the only people that really have the capacity to do this are the, it's, uh, the manufacturers. And in fact, uh, Karen Sarlo, who works for Procter and Gamble, she's really done almost all of the research on this for them. And uh, <clears throat> Procter and Gamble is the company that actually set that 60 nanograms per cubic meter of air limit. And it is interesting. I mean, it is the only biological compound or bioaerosol that has a, you know, a threshold limit value. And they, they base that number on the rate of sensitization of workers. And what they found is that even at 60, that they, it was an unacceptable rate. And so they, on their own, in their own manufacturing, have gone to this 15 uh, nanograms per cubic meter, but the TLV remains at, at 60. They they actually, Karen Sarla wrote a paper, and they described a bar of soap. They thought it would be a great idea to put this protein enzyme in a bar of soap because it would get rid of the dead skin, and they did this very, very thorough analysis. I mean, they, they, they monitored air um, aerosol in the shower and how much soap dissolved during a you know, shower and concentrations in the air and I think they had 60 people workers who participated in this thing where they used this uh, bar soap and and I think five people became sensitized after six months of just washing with the soap because they were breathing the aerosol in the in the shower so the aerosol is very very uh, asthmogenic there's no question about it and, and it's a you know it's a powerful sensitizer and if you know if if you've got a laundry using an enzyme containing detergent, and you've got a leak in a hose, for example, you're blowing that lint constantly into the air. People are breathing that. So I think it's you know it's more common than is accepted, but no one has done a recent study to actually look at it. 
do you then recommend that your clients switch to enzyme-free detergents? And if so, has that seemed to be helpful? In, yes, in every case, I, if I see enzyme, and actually some of the you know organic, so-called organic detergents do have them, and I always recommend that they go to switch. And yes, it's made a, you know a really dramatic difference in uh, in the health of some of these folks that you know that were sensitized to it. Can you give us a, a, an idea of where we would find these enzyme-free? Oh. You just have to, you really, there's a few manufacturers that don't have enzymes, and you just have to, you know, you read the label. You know, there's, there's, you know, all doesn't have it, and I think there's, you know, there's a couple of big labels. uh, Seventh generation, one of theirs has it, and I think they just recently now came out with one that does not. But you you really have to read the label, because they could change it at any time. Okay. Cliff? Yeah, Jeff, uh, you know, I, I guess you deal with a lot of people who have chemical sensitivities, and how do you handle it when the client matches their symptoms, you know, headache, uh, respiratory irritation, to a material safety data sheet of a product to which they've allegedly been exposed? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, uh, the MSDS sheets, as you know, I mean, they're, they're very, very limited in terms of, you know, the information. So, uh, I mean, I would, I suppose I would just ignore that, really, and just try and see what might possibly be there other than, you know, what you think it is, that, uh, you know, that might be causing the symptoms. I mean, there, the, um, there, there, are, a lot, there are a lot of ingredients that aren't on the MSDS, and often those that are are just it's not very relevant so i think it, it's unfortunate it's difficult to use those things in a in, in a sort of meaningful way it can be helpful but uh i i would always go with a you know inspection and trying if there are what the sources of exposure might be iaq radio would like to thank our association sponsors the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them, wolfsense.com. IAQ marquee sponsors are... John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Jeff, can you tell our listeners about several of your most interesting cases? Yeah, sure. Actually, uh, there was there's a uh, sort of somewhat relevant to what Dita was saying. I mean, I actually had uh, a woman purchased a uh, a new couch. It was a custom couch. Must have been I don't know somewhere between three and five thousand dollars, and she couldn't sit on it, and uh, the company wouldn't take it back. So uh, she asked me to see if I could figure out what was going on. I did that same little technique, and I just you know we I patted the thing with a bachelor took an air sample I sniffed some of it and uh, basically there were two I mean there were two issues you could there was some chemical uh, off gassing and I don't know what that was but that was bothering her but the real problem was that the this custom couch was stuffed with um, with used feathers usually when you get when you look at the feathers from something there would be maybe one type of down or one type of feather. This was many different types of feathers, and there were many, many, many dust mite droppings in the in the mix. And so what these people must have done is they stuffed it with used feathers, which is very outrageous. And I, I think it's even illegal. You know, most of these things you buy that are stuffed come with a tag. And <clears throat> she she sent them the report. I don't think she has yet got her money back, but... I had another similar situation with the mattress where uh, a teenager was having asthma symptoms on this 
a new mattress, and he had to sleep in his uh, sister's room. And I took a small dust sample from the mattress, just tapped it, and it was it was full of uh, pollen and mold spores. And actually, there were some burned charcoal wood fragments in there, and a lot of little crystals that dissolve. Because uh, you, ha- you have to look at the sample right away, and, and a lot of times the medium will dissolve some of the crystals, and you can see that. So there were some strange particles, and mattresses never get exposed to the outdoor environment because they're, you know, they're covered with sheets or whatever, and they're wrapped in plastic. And so the interesting thing was that the, the wood char fragments, the, the, the people didn't have a wood fireplace, so the mattress had probably been in a, in a, built in a fire, in a warehouse fire, and gotten wet when they put it outside where it collected all of this stuff. So she did get her money back from, from that mattress. Those are two interesting cases. Now, let me, um, you mentioned dust mites, and um, these dust mites apparently, you know, cause a lot of problems for people. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about what exactly a dust mite is and how we can help control problems from dust mites? Sure. The uh, the dust mites themselves are part of, I guess, the, they're part of the spider family, and uh, you, you can actually see a dust mite if it's crawling on a black piece of paper. I mean, they're, they, they're now two to three hundred microns, maybe, and you can, you know, the hair is about a hundred, so they're, they're, they are visible. They're uh, very, very fragile. It's sort of funny, most of the scanning electron micrographs that you see dust mites, they look very sort of formidable, armored, you know, they look like a some kind of lizard, you know, <laughs> yep. you know yeah. I mean, look, but in fact, they're just like this delicate bag of water, and I've actually had several dust mite colonies, because I, I always felt that to understand my biggest enemy, I had to really know them, you know, up close, personal, and so, and I spent a lot of time just, you know, watching them, and Occasionally, I'd want to get one out of the colony, look at it under the microscope, and you know, you'd stick a pin in or something, and I'd probably kill about ten of them just trying to pick one up. Hmm. So they're very, very fragile, <clears throat> and they—they're completely inactive when when the t- relative humidity is below seventy percent and the temperature is below seventy. So they're—if they're in a bed, for example, and you're not in bed. You know, they're just all clumped together, and and you see that in the colonies. If you drop the temperature and the relative humidity, they all they form. Uh, you know, like the the old days when the carriages, when those uh, wagons went out west, and the Indians came, and they'd all gather together. So they they conserve moisture by going into a clump, and they never move. So you see these little yellow dots in the colony, the size of an, almost a pinhead. And there'll be a hundred or two hundred of these things all sitting there, and they all look dead. And then the minute the temperature and humidity go up, they're very, 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 very active. So when you get into bed, they're all sort of hiding somewhere underneath in the pillow, or whatever, in these little clumps. And then as the moisture and the temperature go up from our body, then they become active again. And the simplest way, I mean, people go crazy. I mean, you just, you know, you can't believe the things they do to get rid of dust mites and the. It's so simple to solve the problem. It's frustrating for me because I know it's how easy it is, and I know what people go through to you know to think they solve the problem. So it's <clears throat> you just have to put covers on things, dust mite encasings that have, uh, and they've got to have plastic. Some of the, like for example, there's a non-woven encasing you can buy. There's a doctor out there who sells uh, some encasings, and he has a a video on a CD of dust mites crawling through one of these dust mite covers. So a lot of people out there actually have dust mite covers that are useless. So in my opinion, you, what you have to do is you have to have a dust mite cover that stops the moisture from getting in and also stops the allergens from coming out. And the only way to do that, 100% sure, is to use an encasing that has a sort of polyethylene Poly, rather polyurethane liner on it, so they're not so crinkly, and uh, that stops the allergens from coming out. It stops the moisture from going in. These newer ones, these sort of high-tech, expensive cotton polyester covers, some of them have holes in them that are big enough to let the allergens through, and they all let moisture through. So if you if you have a dust mite 
colony in your bed or and you put one of these really expensive covers on they don't even know they experience no change in condition so they can, the colony continues to thrive so you've got to stop stop the moisture so the dust mites are basically where we provide them with body moisture which would be in our you know the big easy chairs uh, you know the sofa where everybody's sitting beds and pillows and much less <coughs> frequently in, in in carpets although you will find allergen in the carpet because it falls out of the out of the bed Jeff I'm curious that you know a lot of people say keep your relative humidity low to help control the dust mite population um, how long can these dust mites last without a moisture source well there's for for the house dust mite uh, that causes all this asthma allergy there's there's a, they go through nymphal stages so I think there's like five or six maybe nymphal stages and there's a couple of them or one of them anyway that can sort of overwinter so they can last you know for several months uh, you know they're completely uh, dormant but dry dry conditions that will definitely desiccate them like I always I'm telling people you know don't wash your pillow don't soak it and get it wet because you know it might get moldy just throw it in the dryer and get them good and hot and that'll you know that'll desiccate them so uh that's you know that's a good strategy for things that you can't um you don't want to wash and soak uh the other way to get rid of mites is to use the steam vapor treatment i've been a big proponent of steam vapor it's you know there's no chemicals it's very green you just boil water in a kettle you have a high pressure hose and you can treat carpets it's an instantaneous kill for dust mites um, it kills uh, fleas everything absolutely instantly and I actually I put it I checked on a mattress I cooked the mattress with steam vapor and uh, I put a temperature probe at the bottom was about a one inch thick mat and that temperature probe went up to 212 degrees in almost a second I mean it was virtually instantaneous because the steam is a gas and it goes right straight through the material and it heats it up to the boiling point, you know, to 212, and then that really just kills and cooks everything. Interesting. Cliff? I was just going to say, under pressure, you can heat it up hotter than 212. You can get those, you know, that some of those things might have a temperature of 300. I think Annie had a question for you. I do have a question for you, Jeff. Um, in the kitchen, um, what is a common reservoir for the Pseudomonas? Well, the Pseudomonas uh, is that stinky sponge smell, mm -hmm. and uh, I believe that that you um, that you have uh, wherever you have you know food and water, you're going to get Pseudomonas. So rags, you know, around maybe around the sink. But I, I actually have a scanning electron micrograph of a sponge that had some milk on it that got very stinky. And and you can actually I forget it's in one of the books I forget I think it's in uh, my office is killing me and uh, it's a skin scale and it's com being com digested by bacteria you can actually see individual bacteria like dozens of them on the surface of the skin scale and uh, that's the odor and and that's where they are I mean I actually developed some silver polishes and. For a company at one point when I was doing some uh, development work, product development, and uh, Pseudomonas aeruginosa uh, was a big problem in in the, in the polishes. So we had to put in some uh, antimicrobial to keep them down. But it's a it's a very it's a very common bacteria. Jeff, I have a we've had numerous shows about damp buildings and health effects, etc. I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on whether you know is it mold, bacteria, uh, VOCs, microbial VOCs, insect parts? Is it the byproducts? What do you think causes the symptoms in people that are commonly associated with water damaged buildings? My answer to that is yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I, I think one of the really overlooked problems, and you know, I run into this a lot, that uh, you know, people are looking for discrete things. They're looking for mold spores. They're looking for bacteria. But the big sort of clinker in all of this is the fact that uh, that there there are surrogate allergens out there 
on everything. And, and what I mean by that is, let's say, uh, well, he is, I mean, I was just talking to somebody about this the other day. Like, now I can, I can taste salt in the air like on a dry winter day where the roads have been salted. You drive along, you can actually taste the salt. And these are micron, two micron sized crystals of salt that are aerosolized. Now, if you're allergic to a dog and the dog urinates on the salt, and then the salt gets aerosolized, you've got dog allergen on the salt. The most common example of surrogate allergen is on those latex, the starch particles from uh, latex, where you know people can actually die if they have this latex allergy, if they inhale the allergen on, on the starch because the starch is inside the latex gloves in order to keep them from sticking together. So now picture one of those delicious-looking uh, condensate pans in an air conditioning system, and you know it's it's full of this bio slime, there's bacteria, there's yeast, there's mold. It's you know grotesque. It stinks, and that's in the summertime. Now you take that, you have a hot air heating system. It dries out in the winter, and you left and you look at the pan, and basically all you see is a bunch of rust. Well, when you look at that rust closely under a microscope and you stain it, you can actually see some of the remnants of these things, but. That water is full of all of these allergens from all of these microorganisms. So I've been in environments where the air is very, very clean. There's almost nothing in the air, but there's lots of rust particles. So that tells me that the rust was probably in some pan sitting around with all these microorganisms. So the rust particles themselves can act as surrogate allergens. And I think that uh, David Strauss did, uh, looked at, at uh, drywall particles from, from uh, Stachybotrys growth and found that there was mycotoxin on the drywall particles. So it is possible that anything in the air can be bothering somebody, and that's why you really have to, you know, you've got to look at the people and say, oh, you know, if they're having symptoms, there is a problem, and you have to find out, you know, what the source of the problem is. If you don't see spores in the air, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reel saying thanks for listening.